Hey guys, DJ here. This is a disclaimer. Applied Materials is a 100% non-profit fan project set within the Orpheus Protocol game system. The Orpheus Protocol is an actual play podcast and tabletop role-playing game system created by Rob Stith and published by Varkalak Press. If you'd like to know more, please check out the podcast at www.orpheusprotocol.com and patreon.com slash orpheusprotocol if you'd like to show more support for the main show. A link to the main show will be provided in the episode description down below. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy the following episode. Welcome to Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. My name is DJ, and I will be your host for tonight. On the cast list for our journey into the unknown, Laurie is Erky Lindstrom, Greg as Caspian Smythe III, Kieran as Dylan Jameson. Tonight's episode, Man in the Machine, Part 1. Man in the Machine contains violence, hazardous technology, old friends, and old foes. Consider this your warning. Previously on Applied Materials, a month has passed. Orpheus lies in ruins, splintered into a myriad of pieces scattered all over the world. In Empire, Nevada, 19 agents gather. The remnants of the Applied Materials investigation team consolidate their resources under the Shroud of Secrecy and commit to taking down those that so easily destroy them. It has been a month since the events of November 2018, when Orpheus fell due to the actions of Applied Materials and their subsidiaries. You all have been sequestered away in a tiny ghost town called Empire in Nevada, and you have all received your briefings for your new missions that you have embarked on. And so the three of you find yourselves in a very contrasting climate to the warm desert that you were just in. As you arrive in Seattle, Washington, you have all been assigned a motel room to be more off the grid than anything else. And Tennessee has arrived in the city first, about a day ahead of you, to scout out the place and then figure out somewhere that you can sit and get rebriefed because he is following you for this mission. What time of year is it in, in Seattle? It's December. Cold and rainy. Cold, rainy, maybe snowy, lots of ice on the road. Yep. Tennessee has provided you with the address to a dive bar in the center of the city. And that is where the three of you congregate for the first time, perhaps, in a while. And so I would like the three of you to go around the table and introduce your characters briefly. Greg, why don't you go ahead and start? Sure. Uh, Caspian is a well into middle-aged man. He has kind of a buzz shave head to make up for the fact that uh, he doesn't have quite as much hair as he used to. He's uh, about five foot nine, 160-ish pounds light skin, and what you can see of the buzzed hair is definitely salt and pepper. He's now in pretty decent shape for a man of his age, and he's uh, not wearing his usual uh, 
LA lawyer suit. He's kind of wearing uh, preppy business casual uh, pants and sweater. Um, and it's probably there half an hour earlier. So grabbing a drink of whiskey at a small table in the corner. Um, so Dylan is um, mid 20s. He's of average height, average builds, medium skin tone, dark hair, sort of honey brown eyes. He is dressed reserved, sort of academic in appearance with a messenger bag slung over one shoulder and glasses. Um, he has also sort of a, he, he's a bit of a weeb. He has a hat on that's like a warm hat that has cat ears, just for funsies. He has dark circles under his eyes and looks tired, but there's also a look of excitement. Like he's happy to be back in the swing of things. He's been sort of uncomfortable having to wait around and do nothing. Erk is a stereotypical-looking Nordic Scandinavian fellow, and he's currently sitting in a probably the most remote corner of the place where we are all meeting up in. And he's about 5.8, 5.9 tall, around 135 pounds or so. So he's pretty kind of tall-ish and very lanky and very skinny in that regard as well. Uh, He has round rimmed glasses on. He has a bit of a mustache and he has has grown a very uh, unshaven beard in the past month since the events in Russia where he was last involved in an obvious-related mission against applied materials. And he's not looking too well in regards of like how he puts up a front. So his leg is kind of like shaking and tapping the ground beneath him. And he's clearly like shaky and being all around him. And he isn't too comfortable being in a new country. He most likely has visited America a few times in the past during his cybersecurity career. But now that he's basically fugitive in his own country and possibly in other countries as well due to other operation before the Russia operation. Uh, he's pretty shaken about that any law enforcement agencies and any agents of law enforcement might come and pick him up or might notice him at any given moment, even like the normal standard, like, you know, everyday police that don't have really access to like any proper databases or stuff like that. But yeah, he's really kind of like scared in regards of his own personal future right now and he's wearing a pretty warm looking like a sweater most likely made some out of like wool or some other material of that kind and on top of that he usually wears or right now is wearing a brown everyday or not everyday but a brown everywhere jacket with a very puffy looking and very comfortable looking hood with yellow lining on it and the jacket itself has the Finnish brand of Halti embroidered in the front of it with just the letters. And so the three of you are scattered about the bar when all of you see the familiar form of Tennessee walk through the front door. The gruff-looking middle-aged man has a full beard, brown hair, he's wearing a baseball cap, a maroon-colored polo t-shirt and cargo pants and work boots. He sees the three of you and gestures 
for all of you to come and congregate in the little corner booth that Erki has occupied, since it is the furthest away from any crowd. I think uh, Cassian would have had his back to the wall to watch who's coming in the front door. And uh, as soon as he sees Tennessee come in, he'll stand up and head for the table that he's taking. Pat him on the shoulder on the way to grabbing his seat and say, good to see you. He nods, and as the three of you sit down, Tennessee briefly lingers at the bar counter and returns to your booth with four bottles of beer. He distributes one for each and every one of you. Erki, this is probably the shittiest beer you've ever tasted. It'll do, considering the situation that Erki finds himself right now, so he's not going to complain. His hands are shaking a little bit as he like takes the bottle and gives a gracious nod to Tennessee. He nods back and he says, Well, it's good to see the three of you as well. I know it's been kind of sudden, but I needed to meet y'all in person for this. So, as y'all are probably aware, we are starting our operations again. We're going to look into Applied Materials and all of their shit. Try and take down as many of their subsidiary companies as they can before we move on to the big one. And to that end, you might be wondering why I've gathered you here. So, as it turns out, I've recently come into possession of some good intelligence regarding, well, for one of you, a very familiar foe. He glances at you, Caspian, and he says, The name Stark Contrast Media, ring any bells? I think uh, Caspian will close his eyes and kind of rub the bridge of his nose and nod at the same time. Uh, remembering the uh, brain crawly advertisement and the awful human computer in the basement. Well, as it turns out, the intel I've acquired is focused in on stark contrast media. For those of you that don't know who they are, they are basically one of the subsidiary companies of Applied Materials. They handle all of the public relations, advertising work, networking, stuff like that. They are a mass media conglomerate that focuses on advertising, mainly. And their CEO is a woman by the name of Morgana Evanston. Now, the reason why I called y'all to Seattle is because of a hunch. You see, two years ago, I worked on a case back when Orpheus was still up. We called it Operation Long Road back then. Originally, it was about ferrying some occult artifacts from... San Francisco, all the way up to here, Seattle, for safekeeping. And then it slowly turned into rooting out traitors in Orpheus ranks, while we were also taking down some cults all along the West Coast. While we were on that mission, me and my team, we found a server farm set up by Andrew Bernier. You know that serial killer who ran a real big tech conglomerate? Then he kind of bit it under mysterious circumstances. Right, he's the one who is in the news for kind of just disappearing, right? Erki gives a nod of recognition, but doesn't say anything. Yeah, Dylan does similar sort of nods. Good, y'all know. So, what I found up here was a server farm on an island off the coast of Seattle, like the northwestern coast. The place got abandoned after Bernier bit the bullet, but then it got bought up by other folks, this cult. And this was about two years ago. We shut down their cult already, but when I was conducting some satellite surveillance of this area a couple of weeks ago, 
I saw some hot spots at that server farm again. Now, color me suspicious, but having it shut down two years ago, wouldn't it be strange to have heat signatures over that neck of the woods all of a sudden? You know, I have a feeling that this might be connected to our investigation. The shit that we left behind in that log cabin, we couldn't exactly destroy. But maybe we'll find more answers if we go back there. It's kind of the reason why I've called the three of you here. Because out of all of the people that are involved in the Applied Materials investigation, you three stand the best chance of working your magic on computers and stuff like that. And he specifically nods to you, Erky. Especially you, Erky. Since you've got a background in IT and all that. He gives a sigh and nods. So, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go in, we're gonna verify the site's integrity, we're gonna figure out what exactly is going on down there, and then we're gonna blow that shit up for good. Now, that's just the general briefing, but when I think back about Long Road, there was some seriously messed up shit that we were all trapped in, like a spider web. You know what I mean? You see Tennessee pull a pen from a pocket of his pants. He grabs one of the square napkins from the table, unfolds it into a bigger square, and on the top of the napkin, he draws a black triangle that's upside down, and then just colors it in entirely with black. So, what we found down there, in the bowels of that facility two years ago, it was an eldritch supercomputer built by Andrew Bernier. We don't know how he made it, or why, but he did and he stored it down there, used the water of the ocean around it to keep it cool. After he died, another cult bought up the property almost immediately. They were called the Branchin Path, some yahoos from upstate who worshipped Daedalus, that, that dude from Greek mythology that made the labyrinth in which King, King Minos housed the Minotaur. Those cultists thought they could use this supercomputer to turn the world into one giant labyrinth of their own design, because, according to them, that was how this world was supposed to be. So we went in there and we took him down. Orpheus seized control of the facility soon after, but we left it under the care of one of my team. He was uh, supposed to research this place, figure out his secrets. I would like all three of you to make me an awareness check with your perception, please. Okay. Good thing my perception is high because my roll was shit. Yeah, I got a minus one and my perception is three. I got a total of two with perception. I will take my re-roll a little bit better. Uh, so that's three and I will spend one mental strain to make it four. Alright, looks like I got a five. Caspian and Dylan, the two of you notice that as Tennessee is talking about this old mission and specifically about the stuff they did on that island and that server farm, the pen in his hand and his hand itself seem to be moving of their own volition, describing some kind of square-shaped maze. In the time that he's been talking, it's probably been about two, three minutes. The maze has covered the bottom half of the napkin and the pen starts to drift onto the surface of the table and is going to keep drawing and drawing. I will quickly put another napkin next to it. Dylan, 
Can you roll me a knowledge occult check with your cognition, please? Yes. <sighs> Two on the dice with cognition. That is five with knowledge occult. I'll put three strain into it. That's eight. As you place another napkin down underneath the tip of his ballpoint pen, you start to gain a sense of the magic that seems to be flowing through the air here. It is faint, but in that faintness, there is power, substance, pressure, almost. It feels like a bull is charging at you with great inhuman speed and horns razor-tipped that could slice through titanium with just a swing of its huge head. But you get that impression for just a moment, and then it disappears as Tennessee seems to snap out of this fugue state, look down and realize what he's done. He swears under his breath, grabs the napkin, crumples it up, and dumps it into his glass of beer, seemingly... No, wait! I'm going to try something because we could probably use that as a map. Why don't you roll me a luck check? I have a bad feeling about this now. It seemed like the right thing to do in the moment. The one. Okay, yeah, you shoot your hand out and grab his wrist just as he's about to dump the napkin into his glass of beer. Tennessee looks at you, raises an eyebrow, and he says, Dylan, what what are you doing? We could use that. Like, what do you It's a map of some sort of that labyrinth you were talking about. No, no, no. This is no map. When we went in there, that place, it changed, it shifted, like a labyrinth. No two paths were ever the same. One of my team that shifted into the liminal space to try and examine that place, they nearly got lost. And then I remember, um, I remember the ship and trying to move around it and how it was always kind of different in the liminal space. I let his hand go. Alright, I thought maybe it was something we could use, but if you're certain... Then yeah. Tennessee nods and dumps the napkin into his beer glass. He pulls another napkin from the little holder on the table and this time starts drawing a proper map, seemingly from memory. And he continues saying, Now, after that operation was over, the team disbanded and we all went our separate ways, save for the guy that was put in charge of the facility by Orpheus. I never really kept in contact with him, but I have a sinking feeling that we might run into some old friends on this one. Some of our team were smart, cunning, and if our enemies are going after us, cleaning up loose ends, I'm willing to bet these folks are going to appear on our radar again. So, here's our game plan. I've pulled a favor from a friend to get us a boat out to the cabin. It's on Discovery Island, on a tiny island park just east of Victoria, British Columbia. Canada, basically. Now, I know what you're thinking. Crossing the border is illegal. But we're right on the edge. As long as we skirt that, we should be fine. The cabin's isolated, and the island itself is small, so there shouldn't be a heavy guard presence. But if I know Blacksteel, they'll have a detail posted there. We're going in with the cover of night, so tonight. We're gonna get in close, we'll kill the engine and coast, or paddle in. I'll have night vision goggles on to survey the island. I'll mark some targets, and you engage on my mark. Once the perimeter security's down, we'll move into the cabin. Any questions? No, sir. Are we looking for anything in particular, or is this just, uh, just shut it down? Our primary goal is to shut this place down, but should the opportunity arise, our secondary objective can be to 
salvage as much intel as we can from this place before we send it six feet under. So hack into any computers you find, pull databases, get hard drives, all of that good shit. Should be doable as long as we don't get shot too much. No worry. As far as anyone's concerned, I'll be doing the shooting around here. If there's no other questions, finish your drinks, try and get some rest, and I'll see you all on the coast tonight. Alright. The three of you leave the bar, and we cut to a few hours later. It is the dead of night. It's dark outside, and it's cold. Very cold. As the three of you make your way to the coastline that Tennessee had indicated earlier in the day, you see that he is standing on the beach, checking, double-checking, triple-checking all of his equipment. He's got a wetsuit on, scuba gear, and he has an assault rifle in his hands that he has laboriously checked once, twice, three times. In front of him, moored to a little wooden post out in the bay, is a fishing boat. It's not too big, it's one of those small ones that could probably carry five, maybe six people at max. And there is an old man standing on deck behind the wheel. He is clad in lots of waterproof and warm gear. And he seems to be just leaning on the wheel, just waiting. Tennessee looks up at the three of you, gives you a wave, and he says, Hey fellas, you made it. I got some extra gear if y'all want. Scuba gear, wetsuits, guns. If you need anything, now's the time. Thanks, man. Dylan will help himself to scuba gear, um, so dual wetsuit, um, two tanks, etc. Um, and Chewie, he's not used to using a gun, but in the interim between when Orpheus fell and now, he has taught himself to probably pretty good at shooting, and so he takes a handgun. Erky will also take a gun and some other gear as well. I imagine Caspian still has the gear that he uh, came from Florida with, but will uh, grab a, a fresh handgun and uh, some scuba gear. All right. Fully kitted up, the four of you get on the boat, and this fishing vessel slowly putters out into the bay. It is a tense ride. The sea air is brisk, very cold, biting through the rubber of your wetsuits and sinking into your very skin. And what doesn't help is the occasional spray of seawater that is ice cold. But the four of you are hunkered down on the deck of this ship, it's not too choppy out, the surf is manageable, and very soon the lights of Seattle, Washington disappear into the distance as you enter the open ocean. If only for a brief moment, a couple of minutes later you see lights off in the distance, and you realize that you are looking at the city of Victoria in British Columbia. The fact that you can see Canada from here is kind of mind-boggling. A few more minutes pass, and the boat slowly putters to a stop, and you see the old man throw an anchor off the side of the ship and into the bay. Tennessee is standing on the bow of the vessel. He has night vision goggles on and binoculars, and he is slowly surveying the ocean in front of him. If any of you go up and approach him, he says, All right, I've got the island in view. You want to have a look? Yeah. He hands the binos to you, Dylan and you stick them on your face, you have a look. Tennessee points out the island that you're looking for. Tennessee points out the island that you're heading to, and he says, it's over there. You see it? 
I think there's a bunch of people on the beach. Dylan, I would like you to make me an awareness check with your perception, this time at a situational plus one, because you're using night vision gear. Alright. Rolled a plus two on that, nice. So that's actually a three. Perception is five, so that's eight. I'm gonna save my... Well, I have a lot of strain. Let's make it a nine. Alright. So what you see, Dylan, are three people on patrol on the island. They all have night vision gear on, but only one of them has the actual goggles folded down over his eyes. The other two appear to be just scanning the bay with their eyes and under starlight. One of the guards on the left appears to be in the process of smoking a cigarette. You see a few little sparks and light issue from a lighter. The one with the night vision goggles on over his face is in the center on the beach. He's kind of sitting on like a bucket or an icebox or something. You can't quite tell from here. And occasionally he is just sweeping the bay with the NVGs, just looking for people, something, looking for people, anything suspicious. No, he hasn't made you yet because the boat lights are off and you are just anchored and drifting. And one more guard you can see is walking away from the dude with the night vision goggles. Seems to be going left to right along the beach. Just casually strolling along the beach. Just casually strolling along the sand, occasionally kicking at something, maybe driftwood or a pebble. We're going to have to approach either from another direction or from the water itself. We've got, and I told how many, I lost track already. That's like six people, right? Three. And I'll share what I see with the others. Tennessee nods and he says, If we can get a patch of calm out here on the ocean, I could probably drop the guy with the night vision goggles on. But it might attract the attention of the other two. We should try getting as close as possible. You three try and get on the beach first. I'll stay behind to take out the guy with the nods on. Once I've taken him out and you know the coast is clear, signal me via radio. Signal me via radio and I'll come in. Alright. So... I would like the three of you to make me first a stealth check with dexterity to see just how sneakily you get off the boat and start swimming towards the beach. I got a plus one on the die with dexterity. That's three. I'm going to be using three strain to pump it up to a six. Is this a collaborative? Sure. Make it collaborative. Why not? Okay. Sorry, guys. What was uh? What was your roll? Sorry. Um, my roll is a four. My roll is three. If I don't use any strain, but I can use up to three, which would pump it up to a six. Uh, I will spend two to make mine a five. So Erki leads. Caspian adds a plus two. Dylan adds a plus one. So that actually bumps up your total roll to a nine. Not bad. The three of you slip into the water and almost as if you're practiced professionals, you swim in a loose formation towards the beach. You hug the waves as they lift your body up in the surf and then swim as you come down. And your heads duck underneath the surface of the water when you see the guy with the night vision goggles turning towards you, avoiding his gaze at least for now. The three of you make it to the beach. You are about 
20 feet away from the guy on the right that was kicking pebbles on the beach, walking towards you at this point. He hasn't seen you yet, but he could very, very soon. What do you do? I think as soon as we hit the beach, uh, Caspian will have activated his spirit guardians. Uh, so these, uh, for anyone who's able to see them, a uh, pair of slender, ghostly, very much like the stereotypical alien greys who kind of just take up position around the area. So, Eriki, this comes as a surprise to you when when Caspian summons forth his spirit guardians, you see just these two aliens, ghost things, appear, like, on both sides of him. It's kind of weird. Uh-huh. So, what do you do? There is a guy with an assault rifle that is about two minutes away from seeing you as he is walking towards your position on the beach. Set up. Can I do something retrospectively? Sure. I think that I would have, um done rank three of um of telepathy to get us all connected so we're all on the same page okay yeah you have that mental link you caspian air key and tennessee i'll run the um we only have two minutes to do this so many how good of a look did i get at the guy with the gun all three of them are armed actually the guy that is approaching you has an assault rifle okay um my my bad how how good a look did I get at the guy who had the night vision? He is about 10, maybe 15 feet away, and he has been sort of lazily scanning the ocean with his night vision goggles. Oh, he's a lot closer than we thought. Shit. So, the guy that is walking towards your position is between you and the dude with the night vision goggles. Is there anywhere to take cover? Like driftwood or anything? You're already on the beach. Yeah, that's what I mean, like driftwood or anything. With large rocks. Why don't you roll me a luck check, both of you? That's a two. That's a minus one. <laughs> That's a plus two. Dylan and Erki, the two of you manage to find cover on this beach. You retreat back towards the surf and circle around to the right, and you find a small outcropping of rocks that fits the both of you. Caspian, however, you're not so lucky as when you approach the outcropping to try and take cover back there as well, it's not big enough for you. What do you do? Well, I think Caspian will uh, lower himself as much as possible and uh, stay through the bond. I can probably take this guy down or at least stun him in one hit, but if we're ready to go hot, might be time to take down the guy with the goggles. I pass the idea that you what if you take out that guy um, Tennessee takes out the guy with the night vision. I can use impossible geometries to get over to the other guy and shoot him. Tennessee says through the mental link, All right, I'll try and line up a shot as soon as I can. Count us off, Dylan. I'll shoot on your go. All right, I'm going to look at the others, teleport to beyond, like behind the guy farthest away. I was just going to work mechanically. So, mechanically speaking, what I would like you to do is to make me a ranged attack with your attack pistol skill or whatever ranged firearm skill you have. Dylan, you're making it at a minus one because you are coming out of a teleport to do so. Yeah, but I'm also giving a plus two to stealth. Yes, you are. I am just using your previous stealth roll to continue doing that so we don't have to roll again. Oh, okay. 
Caspian, how are you going to take out this other guy? Are you going to shoot him or do something else? Uh, I'm going to rank three Baleful Dead him. All right. Dylan, before you make me that ranged attack roll, you're shifting into the liminal space, aren't you? Yes. Oh, what sorry mistake you've made. I mean, I'm teleporting. I'm not going to stay there. I'm just going to like, whoop. The brief glimpse you see, Dylan, of the liminal space of this place, sandwiched as it is in the magic that permeates reality, it sends a horrific chill down your spine. When you shift into the space between spaces here, at first, you are a little confused as to why there is no color. Then you remember you're in the liminal space. This place does not obey the laws of physics. From where you're standing on the beach, all of the water seems to have just gone, vanished into thin air, yet you can see the boat out in the far distance. You know that Tennessee and the old sailor are there, but it appears to be floating in midair. And when you peer down off the edge of the beach, you can see the ocean floor laid bare, rocks and dirt and mud and dead fish, bones and wrecks of ships scattered across the ocean floor for miles upon miles. That's not what sends the chill down your spine. What does are two things. The first are massive, massive cables with ends tipped like buzzsaw blades that weave and flow through the air like ocean currents almost. In fact, it reminds you of worms in a way, how they seem to twist and navigate through the air like they're slowly digging through dirt. And when you look directly down, there is a massive yawning abyss with a trio of glowing red lights in the middle of it. The chasm seems to extend forever into infinity. And you don't know how, you don't know why, but the more you look at it in this stretch of time compressed into a moment, you think you see that same triangle, that weird eldritch entity made out of ones and zeros that Tennessee had drawn in his napkin. And I'd like you to roll me a horror check, please. Okay. I'm assuming this is an eldritch thing so I could use knowledge eldritch to count um, to, yep. to help against it. I'm gonna re-roll because I can do that for this one. Yeah, plus two is better than negative two. Yeah. Um, so two plus willpower is three plus three times strain because I have stability at five. So that is, what did I say? Three, two, eight, eight, eight. Alright, you pass, standing to lose 6 preventable sanity damage. And I would like you also to roll me a temporary insanity check. Uh, I'm going to use my Knowledge Eldritch at 5 to bring that down, that 6 down to a 1. Do you still want me to roll for temporary insanity since I brought it down so far? No. Yeah, off to this point. Although you're only here for a moment, it feels like eternity when you finally pop out of the liminal space, gun drawn, next to the guard that's on the far end of the beach. Okay, and I will count down three, two, one. 
Make me that ranged attack. Caspian, make me that Baleful Dead attack. And that's with uh, unnatural attack now, right? Yes. Eight. That is a three, and I will add three of my combat strain and make that a six. So, three things happen within quick succession of each other. Dylan, you unfold yourself from the liminal space, your body slowly coalescing together from TV static. Your gun is drawn, and as you pop the guard, who is very much unaware of your arrival, in the back of the head with your silenced pistol, you hear the silenced staccato crack of a rifle, and the sound of something like a wet sack of potatoes hitting sand. And you know that behind you, the guard with the night vision goggles is very dead. Caspian, what does your baleful dead look like? Uh, it looks like kind of the same rays that are his spirit guardians, but these ones are melting and burning, kind of dripping down around and through the target. Erki, you see all of this happen. Caspian, the guard in front of you is assaulted by all of these ghosts that you have conjured up from the land around you. Four slash six, uh, that was uh, rank three. And so these writhing phantoms consume this man's soul and you can see him start just bleeding from the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouth, clawing at his own throat. And eventually the gurgles turn to silence as he collapses on the sand. All three of the guards on the beach are dead. I'm going to search the body of the one closest to me. I'm looking for any intel, but also if there's like ID cards or badges that we might need to use. Yeah, Erky will do the same and head towards the nearest corpse of the guard, but instead of like looking for ID cards and stuff, he will actually look for like any potential like uh, heart monitors or something like that, which might like potentially alert, uh, like alert the other people on the island that three guards have gone down. Yeah, I think uh, Caspian will search his closest guy at the same time that Erki is, and um, doing two things: looking for a security card or something along those lines, uh, but whatever it is, an item to do psychometry on, and will also. Uh, Use possession rank two to gain black steel security procedures at rank S. You're, you're literally gonna get the ghost of one of the guards you just murdered to possess you. Absolutely, best when they're fresh. It's okay. I'm probably gonna mask a faceless the guy with the uh, with the night vision goggles. So I'm not gonna make any of you roll. It's easy enough to search corpses when they're well corpses, but air key. The corpse of the guard that you're searching is the one with the night vision goggles. As you're sort of patting him down, looking for an ID card, you find one. It's in a breast pocket. You pull it out. Looks fairly normal, like a scannable key card, that sort of thing. And that's when you hear the radio clipped to his chest squawk with static, shortly followed by a voice on the other end saying, Whisper 2, this is command. Check in. Over. Oh dear. So, since we're all connected telepathically, would you be able to, would you think that as we hear it, Erky? And that's what the three of you hear. Okay, one second. And I will rush over to him um, and mask of the faceless this guy. I'm going to take this guy's face in his voice. Erky, you see 
Dylan go from Dylan to the guy with his brains splattered all over the floor. Well, before his brains got splattered all over the sand. Mm. That's weird. That's really weird. Dylan, I'd like you to make me a presence check with charisma, please. Me? Yes, you. Before you make me that presence check, though, I would like you to roll me a luck check. That is a one. Cool. So you remember that this guy's call sign is Whisper 2 and that he was assigned to beach duty and is due a check-in every two hours. And this is that two-hourly check-in. So I respond with a proper call and response. It's Whisper 2. Checking in over. Make me that presence check with your charisma. This time, you will be at a situational plus two because you have assumed this guy's identity. Oh, good. Makes me flat so much better. So that's a two. Presence is charisma, so that's plus five. I have a presence of three. I'm going to put all three in, so let me... So eight. The voice on the other end takes a moment, and then you hear it say... Solid copy, Whisper 2. Be advised you have another ten minutes before your shift change arrives. Just letting you know. Over and out. And then the radio falls silent. We've got ten minutes, guys. You say this into the mental link. Tennessee responds with, All right, I'm going to have our man move the boat in a little closer. I'll swim to you. Once we link up on the beach, we're heading into the cabin. Shouldn't take a couple minutes. And not a couple minutes later, Tennessee emerges, waiting from the surf, next to you, Erki, and Dylan. He has his rifle raised, pointed in the direction of the cabin further inland, and he says through the mental link, All right, I'm on the beach. Gather up, let's head to the cabin, quick. I'm going to stay in this mask, I'm going to stay in this mask, because it might even be useful later, so. What about the corpses? Do we just leave them here? I mean, I know we have only ten minutes before the shift change, so... Yeah, it would be, in a perfect world, we would move them. I don't think we have time for it. And then, like, I look over questioningly at Tennessee. We gotta get off the same. Yeah, I don't think we have any time to hide these bodies, so I say we just let them lie. After all, once Blacksteel know we're coming, they'll know we're coming. The four of you make your way towards the cabin that is further inland. It appears to be a rather bog-standard log cabin. Something that you would see out in a forest somewhere. Erki, this vaguely reminds you of summer houses that you and your family spent time in during the summer. Except instead of it being a more modern-looking house, it is made out of logs. I was about to say that there might be like some like sensations of like longing or something like that vein like emanating from Erki. There might be like a Japanese bath set up, but not, not a sauna in the Northwest, that's for sure. The four of you make your approach to the cabin, and, and from the outside, everything appears to be normal. When you get in, the inside also appears to be quite normal too. There is a kitchenette, there's a bedroom, living area with a couch, TV, there's a bedroom. It's pretty well furnished, this place. Tennessee, he says, oh shit. Uh, they must have changed the security on this place from the last time I was here. Because the last time I was here, there was an elevator hidden somewhere in this cabin. It was pretty obvious, though. One of our guys pulled on a fake book in a bookcase, and that opened up the whole bookcase, you know, like in a movie. Um, let me see what I can find out. 
Give me just a moment. Unfortunately, the bookshelf's not here. So, where the fuck could it be? Do I know through uh, my knowledge uh, Black Steel security? You know that this cabin does indeed hide a means to get into the facility underneath the cabin building itself. Unfortunately, your knowledge extends to more general black steel security measures. And so despite you knowing that this cabin is meant to hold a hidden entrance, you also know that these hiding places vary from facility to facility. So what might be an entrance for one facility might not be the same for another. All right, I'll share essentially that through the bond that I know that it's in the building, but I'm not sure quite where it is. So Dylan will sort of nod and go, I think I might be able to find out, but while I'm working on it, shouldn't the mechanism still be in a similar place? I mean, the wiring for that sort of thing isn't something that you can necessarily move around in a house very easily. So where was the bookcase located before? It's probably in a similar area. Why don't the three of you make me a collaborative investigation check with your cognition? And don't worry, I'll also be rolling with you as Tennessee. So before we do that, as that thought is coming between us that we should look for it, Dylan's going to suggest one of us should stand guard because this may take more than 10 minutes. Tennessee looks to the three of you and he says, Well, I guess I'm it then. The three of you look to be a touch smarter than I do. So, go for it. I'll stand guard, just in case. Alright, um, and then do I get anything from the memories that I took from the sky or no? Why don't you roll me another luck check for that memory? My investigation with cognition, I got a 1, and I'm using 3 strain to bump it up to a 4. That's the best I can do. Uh, I got a 6 with no strain. Wait, this is what kind of- oh, the investigation. Sorry, I was doing a um, luck check, right? So it's a 2. So... Using the memory of the guy whose face you're wearing, you instantly know that the hidden entrance to what you now realize is an elevator is in the bathroom. Cool. But I would still like you to roll me the rest of that investigation check anyway, because this will then lead into the next bit of this encounter. Uh, yeah, got you. Investigation. One plus um, so four... My investigation is at five, so you three times strain seven. Actually, I'll spend. I think I have. Uh, I have rank S, so I'll spend one of my tenth strain on that to bump it to a seven. So with a seven, a seven, and a four, your collaborative check goes up to eleven. Dylan, you lead the way, wearing the guise of the man that Tennessee just murdered, and you lead the group to the bathroom. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky. The memories of the man whose face you're wearing say that there is a certain combination of actions that you need to perform in here using things in the bathroom and the shower in order to activate the lift itself. However, what memories you do get are very fuzzy. All you know is that it involves the hot and cold water faucets and the shower head in the little shower cubicle. Hmm. So not too many choices here. So I will, yeah, I mean, it's really a matter of like, 
probabilities, right? So like, I'll do permutations, I'll start turning the cold and then turning hot and then etc. Then try the next one and the next one. This one. As you start doing that, uh, Tastin will reach out and say, uh, just a second, uh, let me try. And we'll touch one of them and use psychometry. So Caspian and Erki, if the two of you want to use your psychometry on the hot and cold water faucets, you can do so. Yeah, sure. Yep. Caspian, what rank is your psychometry at? Uh, rank two. Minus rank one. All right. So here's what you get. You understand that these faucets must be turned to a certain position in order to activate the release mechanism for the elevator. But that can't be it. With your cumulative investigation check of 11, Dylan, as Caspian and Erki are fiddling with the water faucets, you are investigating the rest of the bathroom. And so as you're sort of pouring over everything, looking at the shampoo bottles, checking the toilet, you flush the toilet, it's a toilet. And then you get to the sink and the little mirror and medicine cabinet. And as you sort of turn the little knobs on the faucet for the sink, no water comes out. That's kind of weird. And when you look at it a little closer, you see that the tap isn't actually a tap. It's a scanner of some kind. And shortly after that, when you try and open the medicine cabinet behind the mirror, it doesn't open. And instead, when you put your hand on the edge of the mirror, a bright green glowing line appears on the top of the mirror and then starts scanning downwards and then scanning back upwards. The green line disappears and then the mirror displays the text facial ID recognized. Please scan fingerprints. Dylan, what do you do? I anticipated that too. I look like this guy. I have every aspect of him. So I'm going to trust that the fingerprints work. And I'm going to use the fingerprints. You follow the vague memories that you can recall from this guy's face. And almost by instinct, you put your index finger underneath the tap of the sink, pressing it against the opening where you would expect water to come out of. On the mirror, you see displayed scanning fingerprint, followed by fingerprints accepted. Unlock elevator. Caspian and airkey. The two of you have impressions of how you need to turn your faucets in order to unlock this elevator. And as you follow sort of the vague impression of how your hand should twist and turn, when you turn the faucets, they don't turn like regular hot or cold water faucets. Instead, you feel a series of barely imperceptible clicks like you're turning the knob on a safe. Air key, you are holding onto the hot water faucet and you turn it to a certain position and you feel a more substantial click into place. Caspian, you do the same for the cold water knob, twisting it the other way into a different position and feel it click into place. And then Dylan, going by instinct, you grab the shower head and you turn it slowly counterclockwise. Once the shower head rotates 90 degrees, it locks into place, and the mirror displays activating elevator. 10 seconds. 
Um, every bit of information that I'm getting is basically an open frequency to the others. So as I'm hearing it, you're hearing it also. Okay. It is right about this point that you see Tennessee enter the bathroom. He notices that you have figured out the puzzle and sort of shoves the three of you into this cramped space of the shower stall. You're all sort of bundled in there like sardines in a can. And the glass door of the shower stall slides noiselessly closed. The floor judders a little bit. And then you descend. As the platform you're standing on lowers into the ground, the space around you seems to open up mechanically. As the shower stall opens up into a more spacious elevator, the walls and floor expanding from how they have been folded into themselves like a folded up map. It is all mechanical, there is no magic in this, and once you have some room to yourselves, Tennessee kind of pats himself down and checks and rechecks his rifle once again. He seems a little tense, and I would like anyone who wants to to make an empathy check with your charisma. You don't have to if you don't want to. I roll plus three. Empathy. Empathy. I have empathy two. So I can put three, three into it. So that's six. He's off of charisma. So that's nine. That's four for Caspian. Caspian, you get the sense that Tennessee is a little nervous. But you attribute it to him just sort of being in a familiar yet unfamiliar place. And... Chalk it up to that. Dylan, however, you can tell that these nerves come from a deeper place in Tennessee. In fact, you've never seen him this nervous before. And it's not just nerves. He appears to be very tense and on edge. I kind of limit the connection so it's just us for privacy because that's polite to do. Um, you you in Tennessee glances at you, Dylan, and through your private channel he says yeah it feels weird coming back to a place like this i mean two years ago we were fighting tooth and nail to get in here and now it's just a straight shot in doesn't feel right you know with my empathy check from before is it possible to tell like is he telling the truth is that really what he's worried about he's telling a partial truth He's being honest about it being really weird that he's down here again and it's been so easy all this time, but you can tell that there's a deeper underlying tension about him being in this place. Do I get the feeling that he feels guilt towards us? Or that he may be harboring some regret? Not towards you three, but to something, someone else in the past probably connected to this place. I don't think I have enough information to do anything about this. I don't think, like, as a character, I know what to do. The player in me wants to be like, this guy's being shifty. But that wouldn't make sense. So I'm going to... I'm gonna I'm stick with the character, and I'm going to nod my head. Alright, well, you know, if you think of anything, then just let us know. I mean, even a small thing could be useful, you know? He nods, and he says to you, Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just... 
you know, coming back here just reminded me of everything you went through in that original operation. I mean, God, if you could have seen it. It was fucked to begin with. We were going to see some researcher down in San Francisco to get an artifact and a bunch of people just tried to kill us all at once. Like, not even before the mission had even started. Four, you count up four cults were going after us for that artifact. And our original handler was the one that was pitting everybody against everybody, trying to set fire to the western seaboard and cause an apocalypse of biblical proportions. And I do mean quite literally biblical. It was fucked, Dylan. I do mean fucked. I can't even imagine. I'm sorry you had to go through that, man. It's part of the job, Dylan. That it is. When the operation was done, Orpheus, being Orpheus, they buried everything. And they let us go and live our lives, but I chose to stay, so... I know that my best work is done in the shadows. Doing all this. Sure, I get nervous. I regret some things. But at the end of the day, I know that uh, what I'm doing is right. At least, it's right for me. Dylan nods, feeling a little bit better. Um, still a little on edge, but he nods. Alright. Well, I guess I just wanted to check in with you, man. Let's continue on. Let's say Garrett. He pats her shoulder and he says into your mind, Thanks. It's not often that I uh, work with people who actually check in on me, you know? Usually it's just me and old Bonnie here. And he motions to his wristwatch. The little blue light blinks at you, Dylan, and you hear a little robotic chirp. Actually, all of you hear this come from Tennessee's watch. Cute little beep boop, like R2-D2 in Star Wars. <laughs> nice. Dylan smiles at that and nods. Well, good job, friends, in small places, too. Yeah, let's get on with this. This piece creeps me out. As the elevator judders to a slow stop, the doors in front of you hiss open, admitting you into a blackened corridor that then lights up in stages. You can see strips of LED lights in the floor, the walls, the ceiling, illuminating one row after another, making the hallway bright again. The floor is smooth metal plates. The lights are in the ceiling, in the walls. Some are along the floor. This whole place feels so sterile. And it's quiet down here. Way too quiet. You would have expected the whirring of an air compressor for air conditioning or ventilation and the hum of the elevator's motors. But there's nothing. It's just a weird, spooky, unnatural silence. This has been Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. A warm thanks to our players tonight. Kieran for playing Dylan. Laurie for playing Erki. Greg for playing Caspian. Be sure to follow the show at Applied Mats on Twitter, and we will return in the next episode. Good night. The team venture into the proverbial heart of darkness, not knowing what they'll find. Technology meets flesh. Next time on Man in the Machine, Part 2.